0: Thank you for joining us for Listen In, GI Endoscopy. Throughout the series, Dr. Srinivas Gaddam hosts world-renowned expert clinicians to discuss the latest developments in gastroenterology-based diseases and the use of GI endoscopy in their diagnosis and management. This podcast is brought to you by the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, home to more than 16,000 members worldwide and the leading voice for GI endoscopy. We thank our sponsor, Cook Medical, for making this series possible.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Srinivas Ganam your host for today's episode on medical management of chronic pancreatitis. We'll explore the disease's mechanisms and complexities in patient care. We're honored to have not one, but two distinguished guests. Both have received Lifetime Achievement Awards from the American Pancreatic Association for their remarkable contributions. They also co-chair an NIH-funded u one grant, the Consortium for the Study of Chronic Pancreatitis, Diabetes, and Pancreatic Cancer, which aims to uncover the mysteries of pancreatic diseases. Join us as we delve into chronic pancreatitis with our esteemed guests who bring unparalleled expertise. Welcome to listen In, GI Endoscopy. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to say a special thank you to Cook Medical for their generous sponsorship, making this podcast possible. It is my pleasure to introduce you to our first guest, Dr. Stephen Pandall. He's a distinguished figure in the field of gastroenterology, and his work extends far beyond clinical practice. He heads the cedars Sinai Pancreatic Research Program, a hub of cutting edge research dedicated to advancing our understanding and treatment of pancreatic diseases. His research seeks to unravel the complexities of pancreatitis, both acute and chronic. In addition, he explores the connections between diabetes, pancreatitis, and pancreatic cancer, recognizing the importance of addressing these underlying factors. With a strong background in research and clinical practice, Dr. Dr. Pandal's insights have been instrumental in advancing our understanding of these complex interactions in health and disease states of the pancreas. He has played a pivotal role in shaping the field. He has inspired and mentored mentored numerous researchers in the field, and we're delighted to have him join us today to our podcast to share his knowledge and experience. Welcome, Dr. Pandal.
0: Thank you, Shree.
1: Next, uh, it's my privilege to introduce our second guest for today, Dr. Christopher Forsman. He is the Chief and Professor of Medicine at the University of Florida's Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition. His expertise centers on pancreatic diseases, including acute and chronic pancreatitis, biliary and pancreatic malignancy, and advanced therapeutic endoscopy. Dr. Forsman's contributions have earned him a recognition, including the Lifetime Achievement Award from the University of Florida College of Medicine 2022. He plays a vital role in shaping the field, has, is uh, serving on editorial board of many uh, prestigious journals, and holds uh, various positions in GI organizations. Uh, doctors, uh, for, Dr. Forsmark's research leadership is equally impressive, leading important initiatives such as this uh, consortium that we just talked about. Uh, we're thrilled to have Dr. Forsmark with us today to share his insights. Welcome, Dr. Forsmark.
2: Thanks. Happy to join.
1: We're going to talk about chronic pancreatitis and my first question for Dr. Pandolf. Uh, So tell me about how should, you know, a general gastroenterologist in his early career who's beginning to see these patients with abdominal pain, how should somebody think about, you know, from a mechanistic and a natural history perspective, uh, please do tell us what is chronic pancreatitis?
0: What is chronic pancreatitis? So, um, The the history uh, goes back several years, um, how we've defined it. I'll I'll try, and and Chris is probably going to have to add to this. So so it started with kind of a description of the histological uh, features, uh, first described by a man uh, by the name of Comfort back in the 1940s, where uh, he was observing from surgical specimens that patients who had recurrent episodes of pancreatitis, acute pancreatitis, that they slowly evolved into fibrosis and inflammation. In the tissue. So, what we have in our minds is that chronic pancreatitis is a disease of recurrent uh, episodes of pancreatitis on top of chronic developing fibroimmune, fibroinflammatory response. I call it, and so it just keeps building. And for and in this disease, uh, it's chronic because we can't stop it. We d- we don't have a way to stop it, so it just continues. So, it's a portion of patients. <clears throat> for the most part, but this is not always true. The portion of patients who have acute pancreatitis go on to these recurrent episodes and, and chronic pancreatitis. However, I will say it's becoming more and more evident that some people show up with features of chronic pancreatitis that we see mostly on imaging, that uh, that they didn't have these episodes of acute pancreatitis. So uh, they somehow were silent uh, or or it's a different type of disease. And maybe Chris, you could comment more on that. but That's kind of an intro.
2: Yeah, no, it's um, it's a it's a question that we don't have a clear answer for yet, despite you know all this work. I mean, it's we recognize it when we see it. It's kind of a it's a syndrome that we kind of mm-hmm. think about in terms of imaging and symptoms and past history and risk factors, and we sort of label it as something that's chronic pancreatitis. But um, there's a you know there's this transition from acute to chronic that's that's clearly happening in a lot of patients maybe most patients maybe all patients even if it's subclinical that we we don't really have a a good way to sort of say when when have you crossed the line when are you now going to be labeled as chronic pancreatitis as opposed to something else and it's it's arbitrary in a sense where you draw that line i mean it's up to us as clinicians to draw the line that we think is most appropriate but it is um It's think about it as a as a continuum, not as a separate disease from acute pancreatitis. It's part of the same continuum. And you just have to kind of figure out where on the continuum you think the patient is. And and hopefully you you figure that out before they're they're at the end stages when there's really nothing you can do at that point.
0: I just wanted to comment a little bit. Uh, The consortium, um, uh, Sri, that you're part of, too, that uh, Chris and I lead. One of our major goals is to actually define the disease better, better uh, imaging, uh, better uh, circulating biomarkers like biomarkers of inflammation and fibrosis. And also recently, genetics, because we start to realize that more and more patients have genetic risks for this. We always thought it was alcohol and tobacco, but the more we look and I, the patients I see we have a lot of patients with chronic pancreatitis which that's not the case and so that we think there's a genetic underlying so we've in our consortium we have about 1500 patients with this disease uh well variations on the continuum that uh, that Dr. Forsmark talked about that we've got genetic information and we're trying to incorporate that into a we'll call it a a, a, a constellation of findings that would be ultimately better for clinicians to make a a diagnosis uh we're in that process right now
2: i just want to emphasize for the um, for the fellows and young gastroenterologists on the call that there is a, a stigma often attached to chronic pancreatitis and the stigma is that it's always due to alcohol and so these patients experience you know uh uh in emergency rooms and from nurses and from doctors is often uh, is often terrible where they're, you know, blamed as being chronic alcoholics. So it's, it's very useful to think about this disease as something that has a wide variety of genetic predispositions and a wide variety of environmental toxins. And it's not all due to alcohol. And I think our patients really deserve that, um, that we understand that.
0: Yeah, I I, I often uh, write letters uh, to whom in may concern to give to my patients to hand to the emergency room doc or whoever they're seeing uh, and, and and emphasize that they have another cause uh, of their disease, if that's the case. Or if it's alcohol, I say it could be alcohol related so that the emergency room doc can call me with my phone number and all that kind of stuff, because right. it, it is hard to deal with a patient coming with pain and they often don't have increases in amylase and lipase because at the end of the stages of disease in the continuum that you talked about, Chris, they often with attacks or pain episodes, maybe is a better way to say it. Don't, don't have those increase and there may be nothing seen extra on a CT scan. And so the, the the providing a doc doesn't know what to do. So I give them uh, the patient, my, my, uh, information on a letter that they can share with them. It is a difficult situation even for the docs.
1: So let me ask uh, about uh, clinical presentation of chronic pancreatitis. Let's say, Dr. Forsnock, a general gastroenterologist is seeing someone for the first time with complaints of abdominal pain. Uh, What should tip them off about the fact that this could be chronic pancreatitis and how should they evaluate
2: I mean, obviously, chronic pancreatitis is not the most common cause of abdominal pain that a practitioner might see in their uh, clinic. It's, it's relatively uncommon. So I think one of the important sort of historical factors is whether they've had episodes of acute pancreatitis in the past. Um, that's an important sort of clinical feature that increases the likelihood that you might be dealing with chronic pancreatitis. I think the character of the pain uh, sometimes is helpful, uh, particularly if you have sort of the more classic epigastric pain radiating to the back, um, uh, which is relatively, um, you know, persistent. But obviously, the the key really is in those patients. Can you verify that they actually have chronic pancreatitis? And at the current time, the the best we have is imaging, cross-sectional imaging. Um, and probably CT is most widely used. And the, the challenge is that you don't really, you don't have much of a chance of making a diagnosis until the disease is relatively far advanced. So you can have chronic pancreatitis and have CTs, which look, you know, only slightly abnormal and still be unsure. I think MRI is becoming probably a more accurate way to gain some insight into the presence of chronic pancreatitis. And so there is a shift, I think, now using more MRI than CT as a diagnostic tool. Uh, but there's no, there's no specific clinical feature. There's no specific pain feature. Um, there's no specific demographic feature that helps very much. And it's one of the reasons that it's so difficult to make a diagnosis, particularly early in the in the disease course. And so it's going to eventually come down to biomarkers that we can figure out. And it's probably going to come down to some type of MRI uh, features that we can identify that might allow us to pick out the patients that are most likely to have chronic pancreatitis, but it's a, it's a diagnostic challenge.
1: Um, So let, let me, um, Asked Dr. Tandall about this uh, is uh, you know, I, I was looking back at the history of medicine, the recent history of medicine uh, on chronic pancreatitis. And then I realized that uh, in the 1980s, with one of the first criteria for uh, chronic pancreatitis, the Cambridge criteria, uh, ERCP-based and now validated in MRI. Uh, and then uh, then I realized that the last changes in US-based criteria were not until the early 2000s. So, not much has changed in chronic pancreatitis. So, what makes this so challenging? Uh, I, I know it, uh, from Dr. Forsmark, I understand clinical uh, presentation and diagnosis is challenging, but on the other end, why is it so challenging on uh, you know developing specific imaging or uh, blood biomarkers?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. We we struggle with that a lot in our uh, national work. Um, let me let me just add that. Uh, that um, the other um, part of this is we do endoscopic ultrasound as well uh, as a, a imaging technique when we're not sure by MRI or CT, uh, and there are also findings uh, that are applied uh, with with uh, U.S criteria for the diagnosis as well um so the cha- the challenge is um actually this is a conversation I've had with uh, Shri recently the challenge is I think we often call this early chronic pancreatitis where we don't find I- imaging findings that meet like you said um uh Shri um, uh, criteria Cambridge criteria and um and so um actually the history of medicine in terms of trying to even define that is a little bit murky. So I, I was recently looking at the guidelines uh, of that uh, particular entity, which is, I think, where we get confused. And it looks like um, it's very, um, how would I say it, um, um, subjective. Uh, and, and it's a little bit murky. So I think what's missing, and and and, and Chris alluded to this, is better biomarkers, whether they're genetic or, um, or blood-based. Uh, and imaging as well. We in our consortium we have imaging uh, methods that have been developed for both MRI and uh, um, um, and now more CT. And a lot of it is actually starting to move to artificial intelligence assistance of making uh, quantitative measures that are consistent with chronic pancreatitis. Now we're in the midst of that work. We it'll probably be a couple more years till it gets into guidelines and things like that. But but I think it comes down to is that that's those those are missing. And we have several people working on liquid, you know, circulating biomarkers, whether they're in the blood or sometimes in the urine. We have numerous folks working on those. And we do find signals. For example, TGF beta or IL6 are found in the patients. Uh, but they're and not in all patients. So we're trying to, I guess what we're trying to do, in fact, we, we've had this conversation in the past couple of days. What we're trying to do is is actually figure out if there are subpopulations of disease with certain biomarkers and not others, and and other uh, subpopulations have different biomarkers. That's our task because it's like a heterogeneous group, and there's going to be different genetics and maybe different biomarkers, whether it be imaging or or um, we'll call it liquid biomarkers. That that's that's a challenge, but it's also where the field is, and and that's what we're working hard to. Address that's what keeps me excited, believe it or not, to try to solve it. Um, yeah,
1: it's a, it's yeah. a hard question to solve. Uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah.
0: Hopefully, well, you you said starting. What are we going to think about fifty years from now? <laughs> are we are we in a muddle now that we didn't get out of? Or are we actually going to fix it? So, so that's the question right now.
1: <clears throat> yeah. I hope if we don't, uh, that the that the smart people coming after us. Will, that's the hope. That's right, Uh, that's right. So um, uh, just to summarize what we've talked so far, uh, we talked about chronic pancreatitis. Uh, To think about chronic pancreatitis in a framework of uh, um, uh, a a spectrum of disease between acute and chronic and not being a definite uh, endpoint, probably all of them have a very fibrosing disease uh, at the end that we clearly recognize as chronic pancreatitis today. Um, There are a lot of causes of abdominal pain and chronic pancreatitis is rare, but you can ask questions to your patients about their history of acute pancreatitis episodes. Look for that classic pain of epigastric pain to the upper back uh, uh, or uh, radiating to the back. And then uh, when in doubt, or if you suspect chronic pancreatitis, always go with a CT uh, and possibly MRI that can be done. Um, the, the chronic pancreatitis is a very challenging disease, both in diagnosis and research, and that there's a need for better biomarkers. So moving on, let's say, I know both of you, ab- apart from being prolific uh, researchers, you, you both see patients in clinic. Uh, so what is your approach to these patients with chronic pancreatitis with severe pain? Uh, I know that pain is the a quality of life defining feature in chronic pancreatitis or symptom in chronic pancreatitis. So, what is your approach to these patients?
2: I mean, Chris, I can me start. First? Sure, sure. So, um, there are no uh, easy solutions for these patients. I think the first thing is to make sure that you have the diagnosis correct. And I see a number of patients in my clinic who are referred with a presumptive diagnosis of chronic pancreatitis and a chronic abdominal pain syndrome who turn out not to even have chronic pancreatitis. And some of these patients have undergone multiple endoscopic ultrasounds and celiac plexus blocks and ERCPs with sphincterotomy and stent placement. But the challenge was that they they never really had the disease to begin with. And that's not you know, putting blame on the clinicians that perform those procedures because the diagnosis is challenging. It's just pointing out that it is challenging. And sometimes we we make decisions when we're not entirely sure. So I try to go through all the evidence and get, gather more evidence to try to see, am I really convinced they have chronic pancreatitis? Uh, um, I try to figure out what the etiology is because some etiologies may have specific treatment. So, You know, most people are blamed as being alcoholics, but if it's a genetic cause, then maybe there's a specific treatment like a CFTR corrector that might actually help. And then I look for other potential contributors to the chronic abdominal pain and probably opioid-induced hyperalgesia is one of the main ones. But certainly we see gastroparesis, we see small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, we see secondary cancer. So you look for those other contributors which might have a specific therapy. And if all of that is, you know, unrewarding or doesn't give you a clear, you know, next step, I mean, we're left with very imperfect strategies. We have, you know, tricyclics and gabapentoids. Unfortunately a lot of these folks end up on opioids, probably two thirds or more, and many of them become dependent on opioids. Um and so I look for anything. I look for acupuncture, I look for cognitive behavioral therapy, I work for Medical marijuana. I look for anything that can sort of save them the the long term risk of opioid dependence, which I think just becomes a never ending downward spiral. Um, a lot of it is helping coach the patient to be able to tolerate pain, even if I can't relieve pain. Uh, and so that's a whole, you know, physician patient relationship kind of a deal where you have to say, I'm, "I know you hurt, but." we're going to work together and I'm going to do everything I can, but we're not going to, you know, make you addicted to opioids. So there's a, I think there's a whole series of steps you go through um, to manage pain. I wish we had uh, a good answer. I think one of the beauties of the consortium that we're part of is there are a number of trials that which are now starting looking at, you know, novel approaches uh, to managing pain, which are informed by, basic science the science that steve does um so i think i'm convinced there are better uh, treatments on the horizon for the moment we're sort of left with doing the best we can in 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 an imperfect world
1: it's a a difficult uh, area i don't i don't think there's a you know definitive management that you can recommend to all patients from what i'm hearing uh, is you work with the patient try different medications try to avoid narcotics as much as you can uh, look for other contributing factors, and also question whether this is true C- uh, chronic pancreatitis or is this uh, diagnosis accurate? Um, so, um, you know, I, I recall, Dr. Pandal, you had organized uh, a symposium with FDA and NIH, uh, and NIH about uh, patient perspective on chronic pancreatitis and the need for therapy in these patients a few years right. ago. And I was really touched when I heard these patients uh Actually, the patients came in, a few patients with chronic pancreatitis spoke that day. And, uh, you know, often how much stigma there is in the community and in the medical field. Uh, and I really like the fact that you you write letters to your uh, patients to carry so they can get pain medicine. Are there any other medications in your mind? Right. Uh, that that you found to be useful is there anything else that that can be done for pain and pain relief from these patients so it's a challenging group
0: right right um i I do use um um, oh let me just back up and point out one thing so i i so i'm not a a interventional gastroenterologist i'm a we'll call it non-interventional gastroenterologist uh, uh pancreatologist and i work with Uh, actually uh, Dr. Gaddam and a few others in our group who are interventionalists. And so I often will do um, a uh, MRCP and with Secretin to see if there are any abnormalities in the ductal structure, like there's a stricture. So with chronic pancreatitis, there's fibrosis and often there can be strictures of the pancreatic duct that can promote or make the disease worse. And so I, I know we have a couple patients where I even have a patient with hereditary pancreatitis where the uh, where the uh, gene it's called PRSS1 is causes the pancreatitis uh, due to a overactivation of trypsin, and these patients uh, invariably does, does people, pay, some patients with this disease invariably go on to a lot of fibrosis, and so I have a patient uh, just just thinking of one where um, he had this disease, which is a cause of his pain and et cetera, but we had his symptoms controlled. Then all of a sudden he was telling me over a couple months that the pain was getting worse and worse. And um, so one option we have is to remove the pancreas. It's called a total pancreatectomy, and we could actually take the islets out and give them back to the patient so they don't become diabetic. And so this patient wasn't diabetic already. So he already had his, uh, he had good islets and he was a he was a uh, what a he was a potential consideration for such a procedure by the way i followed this patient for 30 years <laughs> so so it gives you an idea of how how you have to stay with a patient how's that so so um so i uh he said should i consider having this pancreatectomy and i said okay um and so I refer. We don't do it. Do them at Cedars. Uh, other institutions do, but we've decided not to do them here because there are many other institutions who are doing them. And so I referred him to um, our colleagues at University of Minnesota. And um, he um, um, he had a, um, a a consult with one of our colleagues there, uh, Dr. Marty Frieden, Friedman, who um, who um, said, mm, "Let me take a look at your duct again." So he found a stricture, opened it up. And sent him back without this uh, pancreatectomy, and the patient's telling me he's doing great. So I guess we always have, I think Dr. Forsmark was talking about this. These patients are very individual. We have to consider all the different details of their general, you know, health, uh, what's going on with maybe potentially other diseases. But even in this case, we're thinking, oh, even with this disease causing the pain, are there subtleties that we have to think about that we can make the patient better? So that was just a comment uh, that we always have to consider a lot of different things that could be happening. And then finally, I do use tricyclics and other um, uh, meds often used in psychiatry to to help alleviate the depression and uh, and even alleviate some of the pain. Um, one of our colleagues uh, with us, uh, Dara uh from Pittsburgh, led a study of our consortium patients and showed that showed that the patients not only have pain but they have other quality of life and uh, 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 disorders that go with this including depression uh, and other other metrics
1: of quality of life that are deteriorated because of the pain great so uh, just for completeness Steve I never saw that patient. That you sent to minnesota otherwise i would have done the ercp here just so you know okay so
0: another, <laughs> disclaimer, another disclaimer he he doesn't live in our city and, <laughs> he, 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 <laughs> and so he was taking care of another gastroenterologist okay so okay we, right. we we don't have to be so defensive <laughs>
1: okay <laughs>
2: You know, so, Steve, uh, that, is a, that is a really important question that comes up in managing these folks sometimes, which is, I think we typically start with medical treatment. We look for alternative contributors to the pain. And then we sort of wrestle with this. Is it time to refer for an endoscopic procedure to decompress the duct? Is it time to refer for a surgical procedure to either decompress the duct or resect? Or should continued medical therapy be the best you know, strategy and I think those are very individualized. I think you pointed that out really well. I mean it's it's a it's a decision based on the patient, the ductal anatomy, the etiology, the age, the severity of the symptoms, and you come up with I guess a a you know, what you think is the best choice, which could be anything from continued medical management to the extreme of total pancreatectomy with islet autocell. And those different options are all appropriate. They're just appropriate for different patients.
1: Yeah, just, right. just to summarize, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, you treat the patient based on where they are uh, in their continuum of pain. Uh, if uh, you've maximized on medical therapy, if they're not better, then you start looking for answers about whether or not to do endoscopic, uh, send them for endoscopic therapy, pain management, or a surgery, depending on what their pancreas looks like. Is there a stricture? Is there a obstructing stone? Uh, those would be some things that you would consider. So that's great. But um, and I know it's a challenging area, uh, very difficult. Uh, and abdominal pain is the main driver for most of these uh, patients in terms of symptoms. Uh, so my next question uh, is uh, about exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. So tell me, how do you manage, what's your sort of clinical uh, go-to when it comes to chronic pancreatitis patients? Do you um, do, um, how do you plan when you're uh, planning for um, pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy? Chris?
0: Um,
2: Yeah, another um, not very simple question. (laughs) So um, it's hard sometimes to make a diagnosis. We have a single test available to us, which is fecal elastase, which is notoriously inaccurate. Um, so I think that you know we don't know how many patients with chronic pancreatitis develop exocrine insufficiency. It depends on a lot of factors, but it's a significant proportion. You know, at least a third, maybe as high as fifty percent, and if you follow them long enough, maybe higher. Um, when you talk to these patients, they often do not have diarrhea, even though they may have steatorrhea, if you ask them carefully about the, you know, the character of their stools. Um, I get a fecal elastase. I make sure that it's on a solid stool specimen, because if it's on a watery stool, it'll be artificially diluted. Uh, I may repeat it twice, because it's uh, such a, you know, inaccurate test. Um, But um, I think you sort of take the preponderance of evidence. And if you think it's likely and the fecal elastase is supportive, I start treatment. Sometimes I'll do fat soluble vitamin levels, which will be another um, helpful clue if they're low in vitamin D. That might make me think that exocrine insufficiency is more likely uh, to be occurring. But if I make a decision to treat, then I treat. You know, I treat with um, you know, 40, 50, 60,000 units of lipase with every meal to start. And I ratchet it up from there based on whatever, you know, clinical feature that I'm following. Um, One of the challenges is once you make a decision to treat, oftentimes it means sort of lifelong treatment for the patient. So you have to kind of think about that and make sure that you're confident enough that you're willing to start it. I think a lot of patients with chronic pancreatitis never get tested for exocrine insufficiency. Uh, those that do get tested often get an inadequate dose of enzyme prescribed, and they often get the wrong instructions about when to take take the drug uh and Unfortunately, a lot of patients that get the prescription never feel it because they can't afford it so there's a whole serious sort of series of clinical impediments to effective therapy that you have to think through as a clinician to make sure that you're you, know, you gave the right dose, you gave the right instructions and that the patient was actually able to obtain the, the drug.
0: I, I can just add to that. My, my patient's main complaint is the cost because insurance, um, I guess it depends on the insurance company, but they don't often cover the whole cost. And st- the patient still has a uh, uh, cost uh, uh, component they have to handle. And so, um I don't know what you do, Chris, but uh, I often try to figure out if they really need the enzymes. And so um, starting with fecal elastase and also looking for oil in the stool to see if there's actually staturia, uh, uh I try to determine if they really need it. Uh, and then um, I'm there's another thing that people are talking about. It's recurring Theme that's come back to us several times in the field is do the enzymes make the pain better? Do they improve the patient pain? And there's actually a, a retrospective study from the pediatric group in our consortium saying that it may. So we're studying that again. Uh, but but what I do for my patients is just say, well, if you don't take them, do you have any change in your symptoms? Um, um and then we could even try try on and off to see if it makes a difference. If they need them because it's diarrhea, definitely they they I, I keep them on it. But I often get patients who uh, you have to tell me if this is your, your, your observation, Chris, but I often get patients who probably don't need them and they're getting them.
2: I have a, probably two patients every week that show up in my clinic who have been prescribed pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy based on a fecal elastase of 175 and some loose stools and don't have pancreatitis at all and don't find any improvement. But the, the clinician has made a decision to start enzyme replacement therapy based, you know, solely on a fecal elastase. So I'm, I think in those people, then in other even patients with chronic pancreatitis, I'm, I'm also one that says, well, let's stop it and see what, see if it really makes that much difference for your symptoms, for your fat soluble vitamin levels, for your weight, for your, you know, muscle strength and mass,
1: all those kinds of things. Those are great plans. So. Uh- just uh, to summarize what you've said so far, I guess is uh, chronic pancreatitis. You make sure that they do have an indication, solid indication for uh, pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. You make sure you know uh, that they are having steatoria. Sometimes fecal elastase can be un, uh, unreliable, and that those cases you make sure they don't have uh, fat soluble uh, vitamin deficiency. There's no, uh, or there is or isn't steatoria to help you take the decision of whether or not to treat with uh, pancreatic enzyme. Ah, uh, one of the first questions you ask is uh, if, if they're not better, then are they uh, do, do the patients really need pancreatic enzyme replacement? Is it the right dose? Uh, are they non-compliant or are they not able to afford it? And, and you also look at whether enzymes actually make them feel better uh, in terms of their diarrhea. There is some controversial data that uh, pain uh, whether they can uh, pancreatic enzymes can treat pain and uh initially there was more optimism towards that, uh, less now, but there's still ongoing controversy, right, Steve, from what you told us about right. the study. Right. Right. So right. um, since we're ending the near uh almost the end of our time today, uh, let me ask you very quick questions. Um, very uh, quick questions on let me start with Dr. Pando What's your vision for future management of chronic exercise? What do you think it'll look like? Uh
0: so um there are two things that I, I look forward to and we've talked about them uh, back and forth here today. Uh, and one is uh, better uh, diagnostic tests. Uh, and, and, and we, we do have significant work going on in that area. And the other is trials of treatment. So we have, Chris, you have to correct me, but I think four or so uh, trials for treatment of chronic pancreatitis uh, that are uh, either starting or ongoing and, um, and the, the primary outcome measures Oh, and by the way, they include both drugs and cognitive behavioral therapy, um, uh, as Chris uh, alluded to earlier. Um, and um, uh, so, I look forward to finding one or more uh, uh, treatments that make a difference. And uh, and so, it's both better diagnostic methods
1: and uh,
0: development of treatments. I look forward to.
1: Well, that of course, Mark. What's your vision for what the future of management sequencing
2: will be like? I think Steve encapsulated it perfectly. You know, the two main needs. I mean, we have a need for early diagnosis so we can identify people that we might be able to intervene on and prevent their progression to end stage disease. And the other really is this idea of precision approaches. Can we identify specific subgroups of patients? who respond to a specific therapy and start intervening, you know, in a way that can mitigate, prevent, reverse disease. Um, you know, um, when I was in training, the research in pancreatitis was largely in animal models. And the, uh, today the research is in humans. I mean, the consortium really is, we're, we're looking in the right place to, to assess these, Questions, you know, at this point. So, it's been an incredible um, advance in research and our understanding of these diseases over the last, you know, ten or fifteen years. I mean, it's it's remarkable, and I hope some of the young people listening will be inspired to say, "Gosh, this is kind of a growing and exciting field," and I want to get into that, you know, as opposed to something else, because it really is. It's um, it's a golden age for pancreatic research.
1: Thank, thank you. Um, so as our time comes to an end today, I wanna extend heartfelt thanks to our distinguished House Doctors Handel and Forsman for gener- generously sharing their expertise with us on this weekend. Uh, we appreciate your dedication to advancing the field of DI. Uh And to our dear listeners, your support of uh, ASGE is invaluable in fostering educational initiatives, such as this podcast. Uh, join us next time for an enlightening episode featuring Dr. Muhammad al hadad from Indiana University, who will delve into the latest ASG guideline on endoscopic submucosal dissection. If you have any questions for Dr. Al-Haddad or ideas for future podcast topics, please connect with us on Twitter, tag at ASGE Endoscopy and at Sri in your comments and suggestions. Until our next episode, goodbye and stay tuned for more captivating discussions on listening to GI endoscopy. Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you again for joining us and to our sponsor, Cook Medical. You can find the full series at ASGE.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.